Faith Matters Podcast. I'm your host, John Morgan. Welcome to the podcast for the Evangelical Chapter of the Foundation for Religious Diplomacy. I'm the custodian for the chapter, John Moorhead. My guest today is Dr. Douglas Johnson. He is the president and founder of the International Center for Religion and Diplomacy out of Washington, D.C. He's uh, produced several books, including Religion, The Missing Dimension of Statecraft, and his most recent volume, Religion, Terror, and Error, U.S. Foreign Policy and the Challenge of Spiritual Engagement. Dr. Johnson, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Good to be with you. I'd like to discuss uh, aspects of your book, Religion, Terror, and Error. Uh, I, I hope I have the central thesis accurately described, and that you can, can correct me. It's the idea that the U.S. government has failed to consider the religious elements involved in combating terrorism and the resulting need to incorporate this in meaningful ways in traditional diplomacy. Is that an accurate summary, and can you sketch what you mean by this thesis? Uh, That's pretty accurate. It's not just confined to terrorism, however. It's just, uh, you know, the fact that uh, this is the third in a series of books that started. The first one was in 1994 called Religion, the Missing Dimension of Statecraft, which... uh, sort of uh, put out the call for the, the, the need, calling attention to the U.S. government to the need to include religious considerations in their practice of U.S. foreign policy because, uh, you know, as the bipolar confrontation was uh, coming to a close, uh, indeed when the Berlin Wall fell in, uh, in uh, uh, 1987, the uh, 89, I guess, I'm sorry, uh, you know, and the role of the churches had been so uh, obvious in that. It was clear that this is a force that uh, uh, we could no longer afford to uh, ignore. Uh, some 84% of the world's population sort of derives their reason for being from their religion, and it's just uh, it's just too too important not to have on the table. Now, it's understandable uh, in some respects why the United States is so. Uh, incapable of dealing with these imperatives, and it has to do with, in the wake of World War II, uh, the overriding um, need was to uh, contain the godless Soviet Union. So it being godless, uh, religion was not at the table, and we simply uh, don't know how to deal with it. Uh, it's uh, It doesn't conform to the rational actor model of decision-making because uh, some aspects of religion are deemed to be less than rational or non-rational, if you will. And so, you know, it, the, the State Department now at this point in time has just started to wake up to this need, and indeed uh, within the last two years they've established an office uh, at the State Department called the Office uh, for uh, uh, faith-based community initiatives, which is a, uh, a longer version of saying religious engagement. And they've uh, engaged uh, a gentleman to head that office who's doing a superb job. Uh, he had been an advisor to uh, uh, Senator Kerry uh, before he became a Secretary of State. And 
uh, he does have the secretary's ear, and he's, a, he's able to uh, leverage that in very meaningful ways uh, in uh, calling uh, the, the attention of the bureaus, uh, various bureaus in the State Department, to their need to wrestle with some of these problems. He himself is a, uh, is a professor of Christian ethics at uh, Wesley uh, Seminary here in D.C., so it, uh, it's just a good fit, and he's, uh, I think he's doing a superb job with it. But it, it, it truly is still just a Band-Aid where, uh, as we point out in uh, that book, Religion, Terror, and Error, uh, major surgery is really required to, to do this right. How has the American idea of separation of church and state negatively impacted our foreign policy in this area? Well, it's, uh, it's impact, impacted it in ways, uh, I think it has to do with the political ambiguities surrounding our separation of church and state. And you have so many of our political and military leaders who uh, are intimidated from dealing with the religious dimensions of the threats that they're facing because they're just not sure how far they can go without uh, overstepping their bounds, you know, in terms of the, the legal constraints. And one of the things uh, we, we are actually operating with a bit of a double standard. You find that uh, our military uh, actually uh, can get aw- gets away with a lot more in terms of things like repairing mosques to build goodwill and that sort of stuff. And when USAID, the Agency for International Development, tries to do the same thing, the lawyers shut them down. So, so hmm. one, one person who has not been intimidated, as I've just suggested, was uh, General Petraeus. And when he would make his uh, presentations on Capitol Hill, for example, on his, uh, you know, his uh, posters there, he would have very prominent engaged religious leaders, you know, because he understood that if it was, uh, you know, for national security uh, dimension to it and it had a secular purpose, there's all sorts of room to run. But he was uh, he was definitely in the minority because so many others are just uh, afraid to touch it. And indeed, when you when you even mention the word religion, you find that uh, not only government but um, private industry they run for the hills. You know, cause they don't want to be accused of favoring one faith tradition over another. And it's uh, if you look hard at uh, what our separation was all about in the beginning, as one of the chapters in my book does. You find that we have gone way overboard in interpreting it to something that almost introduces paralysis now, where that was never intended at all. Now, you argue that instead we should pursue what you call faith-based diplomacy. How are you defining that, and can you share some examples of how this has worked in your experience? Sure. Uh, faith-based diplomacy at the macro level is simply, uh, you know, including religious considerations in the practice of international politics. Uh, at the micro level, it means a- uh, actually making religion part of the solution in some of these uh, intractable identity-based conflicts that now uh, confront us, like ethnic conflict, uh, uh, tribal warfare, uh, religious hostilities, these sorts of things. Uh, the, the kinds of things that sort of escape the grasp of traditional diplomacy. And uh, uh, very uh, simple uh, examples would be, uh, oh, one when I would, uh, our, our first project was in Sudan, for example, and, and uh, we took a very different approach there. Uh, most all the NGOs that were working over there, NGOs being non-governmental organizations, we're working in the South trying to alleviate the suffering from the conflict and doing as good a job as one could. We 
took a very different approach and went to the north and purposely set out to establish uh, relationships of trust with the regime and from that vantage point to inspire them to uh, take steps toward peace that they wouldn't otherwise take. And a very uh, watershed moment in that process was uh, about in the year 2000 where we brought uh, 30 uh, religious leaders and scholars together, uh, both Christian and Muslim, uh, to meet in Khartoum. And uh, we had a four-day meeting uh, addressing the religious issues of that north-south conflict that had uh, been underway for, at that point, about 18 years. And uh, uh, it, uh, it, it worked exceedingly well. And one of the reasons it worked well was because uh, we, uh, it was an exercise in faith-based diplomacy. Uh, people were uh, inspired to rise above themselves by the fact that we, you know, we uh, began each day with readings from the Quran and the Bible. Uh, we preceded each day with a prayer breakfast uh, at the hotel for the international participants and, the, and some of the local religious leaders. Um, more to the point, we had a uh, prayer team that had come all the way from uh, halfway around the world from Santa Barbara, California, uh, whose sole purpose was to pray and fast during the, uh, de- the uh, deliberations, uh, praying for their success, and you would find uh, during this time that uh, these folks would uh, silently come in from the sidelines and sort of listen and see what needed to be prayed about and go out and pray it. And, uh, and this, they were matched by a like number of Sudanese Pentecostals. And when my uh, vice president for training had called me with the idea and asked me what I thought about it, I said, it sounds just terrific to me because I can't imagine that people who pray five times daily are going to get upset if we bring a prayer team. Well, well, they didn't. And, and these are, these you know, we always broke for prayer t- time and the like. And uh, there was a genuine breakthrough in communications between the two sides and, and uh, throughout, uh, despite how deeply the wounds ran, uh, they, uh, it was quite cordial. <clears throat> Nobody was shouting or any of that sort of stuff. And we had you know, came up with 17 consensus recommendations and, and acted on uh, uh, some of the, the, the more key ones that, that really helped bring that uh, peace agreement about. And, and then, you know, another element of this would be in my conversations with the Sudanese foreign minister, uh, for example, uh, talking, trying to persuade him in realpolitik terms of that uh, what we were suggesting was in their own best interest to do. Uh, But looking for that convenient opportunity to make a helpful reference to the Quran or how the prophet dealt with it or what Jesus might think about it. And when you uh, bring that faith dimension into those discussions, I have never seen it fail. Uh, Muslims really open up because this is what they, uh, you know, they like to think they're all about, integrating their religion and their politics. And and I think that uh, the more we hold back on being able to have those kinds of discussions, I think the, the, the more we're going to be odd man out in, uh, in the, the geopolitical environment that now surrounds us. In one place in your book I especially resonated with when you critiqued forms of interreligious dialogue that you just described as, quote, a sterile exchange of views about differing belief systems, close quote. And instead you talk about the importance of building relationships and trust. Can you touch on how crucial this is for real change to take place? 
Yeah, I think it's, uh, you know, I, I don't want to get uh, too critical of uh, interreligious dialogue, but oftentimes uh, these are sort of, uh, you know, one-off uh, meetings of uh, where you talk about one another's views and, and uh, beliefs and the rest of it. But uh, that doesn't take you very far. And, for example, when we formed this interreligious council in Sudan, of top uh, Muslim and Christian religious leaders to sort of surface and resolve the, the problems in their communities. It took uh, probably took a couple of years to really get that in place, and uh, the reason was you, you needed the right chemistry, and and this is the kind of interreligious dialogue that really makes a difference, where you can bring people together, meeting on a regular basis. In this case, it was monthly, where you have an action agenda. And, you know, over time, you build relationship, and with even more time, you build trust. And once you have trust, all things become possible. It's just, uh, it, it, it's, it's truly a, a remarkable what can happen if, uh, if both sides come to the table sort of trusting one another. The other thing, too, is that, uh, that uh, an ingredient in all, in all of this is that I've long said that, you know, we, we use the word tolerance, religious tolerance, and... And, uh, you know, with good intentions, but when you think hard about it, you know, tolerance means, well, I'm willing to put up with you. And right, I often, right. often thought that you really need to get past that to uh, to uh, uh, respect, where you, you show that you care enough about them to understand the values that are important to them. And we've had all sorts of instances where we've been able to defuse situations because we could, you know, uh, make a useful reference to Quranic quotes that... Uh, that uh, really applied to the situation at hand, and 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 now I've I've finally evolved to where I think uh, I think to really do it uh, the, uh, as as well as it can be done, you need to even get, even get past respect to what I would call empathy, where you you truly make an effort to sort of put on the other person's hat and try to see it from their point of view, and and that means not just their cultural point of view, their religious point of view, but also how do the, how, uh, what impact on their thinking do the wounds of history have, you know, that, have, that are unresolved, and, and, you know, those kind of wounds exist all over the planet, and, uh, but if you can sort of learn to do that, and it's kind of an irony in a, in a way when you think about it, because this business of empathy, is it a weapon or, or is it a weakness? And, and, and I say that because, you know, the, probably the foremost uh, military strategist uh, or strategic thinker of all time was Sun Tzu, and, he, you know, he said, know thine enemy, uh, and, which makes all the sense in the world. But when you think about it, first thing you do when you start getting into conflict with someone is you dehumanize the other side so you make it easier to kill them you know and you'll refer to them with pejorative names like gooks and japs and this sorts of these sorts of things and and uh so if you really do get to know your enemy and trying to understand what he's all about it probably uh, makes it more difficult to to do the killing, if you will. So it's, uh, you know, there's a bit of a tension there. But I truly believe that, you know, if you're if you're going to engage in this business of reconciliation, which at the end of the day is is always needed, uh, you you really have to try to understand the the uh, this business of empathy. You've got a whole chapter devoted to this topic, but could you say a few things about how the U.S. might 
better tap into the American Muslim community in addressing some of our current challenges? Yeah, I uh, I, I feel that uh, that there's a real need for that, and, and at a local level, what people can do that uh, has proven its worth on any number of occasions is that uh, you can, for example, if you're average member of a church and and there's a you know a, a, a mosque in the neighborhood or not too far away. Uh, to try and inspire your preacher to reach out to the imam of the mosque and uh, and uh, establish some sort of relationship, and then if that clicks, then the next best thing that you do is you have a kind of a social gathering where you bring uh, uh, congregants from both sides together, and uh, ultimately where this goes, if uh, if things uh, unfold properly, is you'll have the preacher preaching a sermon uh, in, in the uh, mosque and uh, the imam doing the same thing in the church. And at that point, you've got a real sense of uh, uh, community uh, going on that I think uh, serves everyone uh, well. And if you look at the uh, surveys uh, by Pew Research Service and the like, you find that uh, uh, the people who actually know a Muslim have uh, twice as favorable a view of Islam as those who don't, you know. <laughs> and it, sta- it stands to reason, you know. I mean, we just sort of believe what we read in the newspapers and get carried away with that. And but when you, when you, you know, like one of one of the things that we're hoping to do uh, soon, we we recently established uh, an interfaith leadership network uh, between the U.S. and Pakistan, and. One of the things we're going to do on our side, we're trying trying to uh, ease the plight of religious minorities, particularly the Christians in in Pakistan, because they've suffered quite a bit. Uh, and on this side of the pond, uh, we're going to try to uh, help arrest the spread and impact of Islamophobia, which. Uh, Based on my own observations, you find that men's groups in the churches are uh, buy into this pretty easily, and so we're going to uh, mount a conference for evangelical pastors uh, early next year, where the, the focus of which will be Islamophobia, and you know, and try to really uh, uh, come to grips with it. You know, if you if you're a Christian, you know, and and you sort of buy into the media for uh, portrayal of Islam uh, and conclude that this is my enemy. Well, as a Christian, you know, you're uh, we're enjoined to do to behave a certain way toward our enemy. You know, you're supposed to love your enemy. Okay, mm-hmm. so so what does that look like? What form does that take? You know, and I like to think that uh, what our center's done, you know, with. Uh, seven years on the ground in Pakistan helping them reform the religious schools, the madrasas that gave birth to the Taliban, you know, and that, that process is going so well. Uh, and, I, and we're also engaged in Saudi Arabia, you know, on their educational reform, and you find that uh, that, too, is, you know, starting to really take hold. And these things will have long-range impacts, particularly on the radicalization problem. But that's that's the that that is the strategic uh, piece in the larger mosaic is the education. You know. My educational background is in intercultural studies, so I appreciated your comments related to the need to engage various cultures appropriately. And you state that unless we do so, we will likely create more terrorists. 
you think this has played out since the U.S. invasions of Afghanistan and Iraq and the ongoing, with no end in sight, war on terror? Well, um, uh, yes, uh, I, I do. I think that, you know, Don Rumsfeld, when, we, when he was Secretary of Defense, uh, made a statement that I thought was very interesting, especially since we were up to our ears working with the madrasas at the time. But he was talking about if the madrasas continue to just uh, uh, produce terrorists uh, faster than we can uh, deal with them on the ground, you know, it's just, uh, you know, there's no way to win. Well, the way to win, you know, the way to, bond, you know, to, to drain the swamp of extremism uh, isn't with the bombs and the bullets. Uh, they certainly have their place, but that's not how you do it because that just uh, sort of exacerbates the cycle of revenge and it spawns more terrorists. But if you can get in there and deal with the ideas behind the guns like we were, uh, have done with the madrasas, uh, you know, where we have uh, strong emphasis on uh, things like religious tolerance and human rights and and, uh, and getting them to buy into that. And, and you know, we've at this point in time, uh, between what we did and then we, we handed it off to an indigenous counterpart that we put in place, uh, you know, we've engaged some 5,000 madrasa leaders in this kind of process, and what the, and, and we we train train them, but then we also look for the stars in those uh, you know in these uh, workshops, and we then give them additional training, and they train others. And so, if you win hearts and minds, uh, then they in turn win others. You know, that's the way you get the swamp drained. You know, and by dealing with the ideas behind the guns, not with the guns themselves. So uh, it's, it's, uh, there's, there's lots of reason to hope, but we need to be, uh, A, we can't be risk-averse because there's no risk-free way to address this problem. So it takes a, a, a good bit of courage, but it takes an awful, a lot of strategic thinking, too. It's not rocket science. It's pretty straightforward. Uh, but uh, if you can approach people, particularly, uh, you know, bridge differences on the basis of religious values that you share in common, and you do it in a respectful manner, and you've got all sorts of potential for doing good. Well, conservatives uh, and liberals alike, including many evangelicals, have been pretty quick to advocate military action in the situation in Iraq with ISIS or, or ISIL. Would you say some of what you just said a moment ago uh, in terms of faith-based diplomacy and drawing upon other options is applicable uh, even in that very difficult situation? Well, it's, uh, I, I, I think that where you can have the most impact uh, is you know, once the shooting starts and the toothpaste is out of the tube, it's very tough to get it back mm -hmm. in. And there's not a whole lot that religious leaders can do. They can play a very important role in trying to help prevent it in the first place. And uh, But that, that takes a concerted effort on uh, all sides, uh, which one doesn't always have, of course. Uh, but then, uh, then when the fighting sort of comes to a close, uh, you know, then they're very key to any process of reconciliation that one wants to uh, engage in. And in the meantime, as we've seen with respect to ISIS, you know that, uh, gosh, you've got Muslim leaders from Al-Azhar in Egypt all the way to Mecca who have denounced ISIS uh, and its uh, claim to be acting in the name of Islam. And 
just, uh, I think it was uh, September 19th or something like that, that uh, that you had this uh, uh, an open letter to the, the, the head of ISIS from 126 religious leaders and scholars uh, citing 24 specific counts of where uh, ISIS is straying from the Quran and the Hadith and and uh, so y- y- you you also have uh, oh, the Secretary General of the Organization of Islamic Co- Cooperation, which is 57 Muslim countries and 1.4 billion Muslims, explicitly condemning it. You know, so but the problem is, is these condemnations and these denouncements. You know, they 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 help undermine the religious legitimacy, but uh, uh, and and that's very important. You know. Where, where you're in situations where sort of religious legitimacy trumps all else, uh, then your religious leaders have to be the front line of defense, and that's in the prevention side. But once it's once uh, uh, the fighting has uh, commenced, as as it now is uh, in a very big way, uh, very tough to have that make any difference. You know, people don't really care whether they're adhering to the niceties of the religion. You know, they'll they'll deal with it in the aftermath. So so right now, uh, political leaders have a lot of opportunities in uh, what's taking place uh, in terms of uh, uniting regional actors. Uh, actually, even uh, there's even the potential, in a very meaningful way, to get Shia and and Sunnis uh, uh, working together on some of these things. But um, uh, I think that a lot has to play out uh, before. Uh, I, I think above all, though, throughout, for our own national interests, we've got to steer clear of. Uh, Finding ourselves in the middle of the Sunni-Shia civil war, you know, and we're kind of we're very close to 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 being in that that situation right now, but that's one that's uh, you know that's above our pay grade, and we mm-hmm. <laughs> we we really need to steer clear of that to the 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 very best way that we know how. So there's a one, lot one of, final a lot, lot of uncertainty out there right now. Yeah, yeah. One final question, and you you made some comments to kind of touch on this, but what suggestions would you have for American Christians as to how they can make a difference in peacemaking at home and abroad by drawing upon their faith? Well, I think I think it's uh, uh, it, it's it's reaching out with an open mind and an open heart to those who don't similarly share the same faith. Uh, and there are all kinds of examples of uh, of good things. There's, for example, in the wake of uh, some mosques being attacked in the United States, there was a, a shoulder-to-shoulder campaign that uh, the uh, Islamic Society of North America and Jewish groups and other and Christians have been working together, to, uh, supporting one another. You know, opening the church to for uh, services uh, opening the, uh, the the Jewish synagogue for uh, Muslims to pray these sorts of things but to have a you know to to, to try to use our uh, our sense of religious purpose to build community where we can and to uh, you know 
reach out the way I was talking about uh, uh, across uh, religious divides uh, in the local community. Uh, I think it's uh, it's probably good to uh, get behind efforts like I just described. You know, what uh, we're not only uh, doing that work on the education business in Pakistan, but in Saudi Arabia, and you you can find that some of the the language in the textbooks in past editions of the textbooks in Saudi just give direct license for desecrating the tombs of the Sufi saints in Timbuktu, for example, or you know, or, or promoting sectarian conflict. But now there have been uh, since we started working with them, and I wouldn't claim that we are the reason for it, but uh, the Saudis are really uh, coming to understand that, uh, you know, as the influence of their oil wealth diminishes, they need to be able to relate on a collegial basis with other countries, you know, in this globalized marketplace. And to do so, you need to get rid of this this discriminatory content and the like. And they just uh, have initiated a, uh, a very major strategic plan for upgrading their education in all areas. Uh, it's not even translated into English yet. That's how recent it is. But uh, uh, what used to command about one and a half billion dollars in terms of educational reform is now shot up to 22 billion, and it's going to go even higher. So uh, there's changes afoot, and I think that if we are thoughtful about uh, taking opportunities that are out there to uh, pointing in a positive direction and get behind them, that's probably the best that we can do. Dr. Johnston, how can uh, listeners find out more about the International Center for Religion and Diplomacy? Uh, we, uh, our website is uh, it's www.icrd, which is the International Center for Religion and Diplomacy, org, and uh, um, we would love to have anybody. Uh, uh, tap into the website, and if you get interested in wanting to support us one way or another, that would be great because uh, it's a huge need out there, and we're we're pretty small. So, <laughs> Dr. Johnston, uh, thank you so much for the time and your expertise and your thought for for this podcast this afternoon. Absolutely, my pleasure, and thank you for calling on us.